welcome to episode 233 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 5th of June, 2023. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. How's it going? Graham. Good evening. And Will. Hello. Let's get straight on with our discoveries then. Phelan, what is zealdocs.org? Zealdocs is fantastic. It is pretty much like that thing I found before, which I've totally forgotten the name of. That was the documentation thing for your phone. Zealdocs is a application that allows you to download various projects, and there's a lot of projects on there, and pull down the documents to store locally. And you might say, that's ridiculous, I have the internet. Well, do you have the internet on a plane? Well, you might do these days, but you might not necessarily have it. But it also makes it handy that if you're trying to do research on a load of different projects for somewhere where you might be offline or have spotty internet connection, you just want to know that you've got the docs with you so you can do the work. There you go. You've got them right there. And it manages them like it's a a, a repo of all the documentation itself. Pulls them down. They look pretty good. Ironically, not the HTML5 ones, I'd just like to point out. They they picked up that I had a dark theme and made the back of the page dark also, so I could see pretty much black on dark grey. I was like, cool. Cheers, guys. The one one document I thought that would look all right wasn't. But uh, yeah, really good. I see they've got old versions of things as well. So they've got your favorite Python 2 as well as 3. How dare you, sir? I use <laughs> Python 3 mostly. Um, yeah, no, they do. And that actually makes it really good because they have other things like there's 209 doc sets. They call them a doc set. So you can store it locally wherever. And it's very handy for doing web dev stuff where you might have, you know, various versions of uh, JavaScript libraries, or if you're doing Java development, God help you, you know, the various Java versions that are about, and things like Django and Python and all sorts of things like that. It's it's just really handy. And so when you download it, is it just everything in one package, or do you have to specifically cache stuff? So it kind of manages the cache for you. So uh, the doc set is their term for essentially that version of that document for that specific language or whatever it is. And you say, you tick a box, nice and simple. Yeah, give me Python 2, Python 3, Django, and say the JavaScript Vue or something like that. And off it goes and gets them for you. And it stores it locally wherever you've set your cache directory to be. And uh, that's it. And then you can just run an update at some point and there might be point releases or whatever. And yeah, it'll pull up down and save it locally for you. Love this. I haven't traveled on a plane for a while now, but when I was frequently traveling and wanted to try and do a bit of development to pass the time, this was the thing that always tripped me up. Like, oh, I can't quite remember how to do it, and I can't get online to Google it. And I'm so used to being able to just not remember things and look them up, being constantly connected. This is a really elegant solution to that problem. Yeah, and, and to be quite honest, I quite like it because I have my leftmost monitors in a portrait mode, standing tall, mm. essentially. And I use that for docs. And a lot of the time it's PDFs, which aren't great because they're designed for A4 sheets of paper, which it is not. HTML is generally better. So I had a browser, Falcon, that literally was my document looking up browser. But that mm. that wasn't handy because then it didn't have my Firefox passwords and stuff like that. So I had two copies of that mm. lying around. And it was just just annoying just for documentation. So yeah, this this is a purpose application that I can just shove over on that monitor and then pin it and whatever and have it in all views or whatever. And uh, it's all my dev stuff on there. We all know you use that vertical monitor for YouTube Shorts. I do, you're right. I can put them in full screen and sit back and relax. Shut up, I do not. (laughs) Will, Clonezilla. Clonezilla is one of those applications that's been around 
for as long as I can remember. Nobody knows where it came from. It just appeared one day, <laughs> and yet everybody has used it, or at least knows somebody who has used it. And I just thought it was worth giving it a shout out. I had reason the other day to move the Windows installation on one of my kids' gaming machines onto some new hardware, and I had to replace the hard disk because that was the one of the things that had failed. And I just thought, oh, God, how do I do this again? How do I make sure that I don't deactivate Windows when I change too much of the hardware? And what do I do about moving the disk partitions around and all of this stuff? And I thought, oh, I remember Clonezilla. I wonder if that's still a thing. And would you believe it? It hasn't changed for about the last 20 years. Um, it works brilliantly. It allows you to just make a whole clone of a disk exactly as it is, or you can clone a particular partition. You can move partitions around. So if you want to move from one disk to a new disk, and which is bigger, Clonezilla is a really convenient way of doing that for no money. If you Google how to move Windows onto a new disk, you will get hundreds and hundreds of results for seemingly free software packages that only do about a third of what you need them to do. And by the time you've installed them and tried using them, you've probably wasted half an hour for each one. Don't bother with any of those things that claim to be free. Just get Clonezilla and it will solve all of your problems. The documentation is pretty accurate. It's been around since the year dot, so there's lots of advice and help out there to look for. It just works, and it's a really great example of a useful Linux-based free software tool that does things better than the paid options. Isn't it just a wrapper around DD? Oh, stop. You're so... <laughs> you and DD, do they pay you money or something? <laughs> yeah. <sighs> It just feels like DD, but like you opened it and then pressed up, up, down, down, left, left, right, right, or whatever, and got the cheat mode for it. No, it can use DD if you what you want is a very blunt instrument, but it's built from a whole load of other parts, which are primarily around creating clones of partitions or images of partitions rather than just copying the whole disk exactly as it is. If you clone the partition, you can clone it to a file, you can clone it straight to a new disk. It supports all manner of USB-connected disks, by the way. So I got an NVMe drive and a USB adapter, plugged it in, booted up Clonezilla and said from that disk to that disk, and it sorted that out and resized the partitions for me. DD won't do that for you. And also, I think it's got some clever stuff in there that will let you diddle with the um, Windows registry. So if you want to move it to a new machine, it can effectively clone it so you don't have to reactivate it and all that crap. Did you mention that it's also a boot disk? Oh, I didn't. Yes, it, it comes... Uh, there, there are a few different versions of them. There's a net boot version, which is fun. If you just you know, want it running centrally, then you can clone all of your machines on your network very easily. But the most useful version is a live USB stick image that you just pop in and boot from, and then you're straight in. Yeah, I've used that to save sort of company data off machines mm. that clients have had or, you know, oh, banger workstations that should have long been binned but haven't been because they're the, the vital machine with the vital software on it. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, rescuing accounting packages and such. And, uh, yeah, it's brilliant. There's one more use case I want to mention, which is a bit niche but very cool. If you had an image 
that you wanted to blat onto, let's say, 10 workstations, Clonezilla has a server component that you can host that image on and then image you know, multiple machines at the same time through multicast. And you, know, you could be building hundreds of machines simultaneously with a free software solution. So if you're into Windows admin and this is a problem that you have to solve, Clonezilla is a really good option. Oh, that is really cool. It didn't have that back in the day when I was doing Windows stuff, but that sounds awesome. <laughs> okay, some listeners of Late Night Linux already use TrueNAS, and this episode is sponsored by iX Systems. In case you didn't know, iX Systems is the company behind FreeNAS and TrueNAS, and has chosen Linux for their latest open storage distro, TrueNAS Scale. TrueNAS was originally built on FreeBSD, providing unified storage for millions of users from the enterprise to the home. TrueNAS Scale is Debian-based and combines the legendary data management, protection, and scalability of OpenZFS with the power of Kubernetes apps and KVM for virtualization. TrueNAS Scale is open source and completely free to use. And when you're ready for a mission-critical business solution with 24-7 support that won't lock you in with overpriced licensing, iX is ready to help with TrueNAS Enterprise. To learn more about TrueNAS and download it for free, visit truenas.com LNL. That's T-R-U-E-N-A-S dot com slash L-N-L. Graham, you have decided to ignore all the cool new features in Pocket and move to something that's open source instead. Wallabag. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I was an avid user of Pocket for years. Um, was it Read It Later? And then Mozilla bought it. And I've been bookmarking things. I use it as part of work and for finding picks and things that I don't have the time to read. It's basically like a... A cached bookmark tool, you know, if you bookmark something, it'll download a cached version. You can read it through the apps or through the browser. And I have to actually thank Phelan for this and also a couple of listeners. The last time I talked about using Pocket and not being happy that it wasn't open source, both Phelan and the listeners recommended Wallabag as an alternative. And I mentioned it a couple of episodes ago when Mozilla dropped the support for emailing links to your pocket account that broke it for me because I use cute browser and had a script to email myself links to my pocket account and I could no longer do that so I really needed to find an alternative and Wallabag I was put off because it's a it's a self it's purely open source alternative to pocket I wanted to self-host it and as everybody (laughs) knows my self-hosting means CentOS (laughs) (laughs) damn it we nearly had it that's the only reason I suggested it to him I thought maybe we can weasel that number out of him so actually I have to say I've never done this I used the Linode voucher from late night Linux I thought well I'll try Linode at the same time it really did so um, I set up like an Ubuntu server it is a pain I must admit it seems a bit bizarre I didn't use Docker I set it all up myself, and it's the old kind of MariaDB or MySQL, populating it with tables, importing credentials, let's encrypt PHP. It seems weird installing PHP in 2023. Um, It's a bit of a pain. And the other thing is you do need your own domain of some kind to use to be able to forward requests to it and for let's encrypt obviously it took me about 45 minutes i've got it on the cheapest option at linode so it's just like five pounds a month so far really impressed but wallabag specifically i love it it's got an accompanying android app it's got a cli tool which i now use in cute browser to send my links to my account it could import my pocket links 
it could only import 200 of them, which I think is actually a, a limit of Mozilla's Pocket API, which is a pain because I probably had more than that, but I just accept that I'm done with Pocket. Then other things I like about it, that has got plugins for all the main browsers. The plugins all let you tag articles, which I find useful for, you know, synth stuff or uh, Fospic stuff. Or... It's about 99% cover there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, and the user interface in, in a web browser is really nice. You've got the thumbnail view, you've got a list view, you can filter by tags. Something that Pocket couldn't do that Wallabag does is automatically tag posts according to a regex expression. So you could get it to automatically tag synths if I put a big list of synths in the story. In the regex, I mean. And it has its own really powerful API. And best of all, it creates an RSS feed of the things you add to it. So you can subscribe to that. You can add it to Calibre, for example, and automatically send cached downloaded versions of the stories you link to your e-ink device like a Kindle. Mm. Um, and it works brilliantly. And it's a, it's a great replacement. Apart from the setup, it surpasses Pocket. And I'm really pleased. So thank you, everyone. Yeah, you set this up. How many times did you forget your semicolon on the end of your DB stuff? <laughs> well, yeah, I I must admit, I, I always have to relearn that stuff and I hate having to do it. I wish it was, there was an easy way to set up something like this. Well, there is probably a Docker container. <laughs> yeah. I, I, did, I did search for a snap, but I didn't find one yet. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I must admit, I, I don't know why. I don't massively trust just downloading Docker images from places. Um, and I wanted to know what I was installing, I suppose. I think there might be an officially supported Docker image which supports it. So, And then I worry about doing that on a cheap Linode you know, shared server somewhere, whether the Docker would add too much to it. At least you know how you installed it. And if you saved it to a text file or whatever, at least mm. you know how to get it back. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure that, you know, being someone who works in documentation, you've documented the process from start to finish. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so funny the amount of times I've had to, you know, maybe that's why I got into documentation because I never do it. The clever bit is that I find the caching really intelligent. I mean, it downloads, it tries to download as much of a story as it can do. It fails a little bit with things like GitHub links, and there are a few rough edges, but far fewer, I think, than with Pocket. Oh, well, that's what I was going to ask. Like, Pocket, I remember, wasn't 100% with the caching, but it was pretty good. But you're saying Wallabag's even better then? When it works, it's better. And it works for probably 70% of the sites I try it with. Um, when it doesn't work, it's not as good as Pocket. Pocket's much more consistent. In it'll at least get something. And it's it's not actually the caching that I use these things for. It's convenient if it does cache it, um, because I do use RS, an RSS reader to go through the feed. Um, and I sometimes need to be reminded of what it was that I was linking. But it can it's it's better when it works, and it doesn't always work. Yeah, I used Pocket for years and then just moved to a Google Docs workflow where I just paste stuff in. And that's part of what's keeping me on Android, I think, is that it's harder to do that with iOS. And uh, also I just I still haven't found a decent RSS reader for iOS that's free. Mm. I think that's the problem, that if you want anything good, you have to pay for it. It's probably only like two quid or whatever, but I'm just quite happy with uh, Feedme, with the Feedly integration and everything. But uh, yeah, I think that if I was going to go back to a different workflow, Wallabag is probably what I would go for. Because it's more about just having the links saved somewhere and the caching's a bonus, isn't it? Yeah. But I also need a quick 
keyboard shortcut or a button in the toolbar. I, I, you know, because I usually haven't got time to really indulge in reading about the synth and the link mm. comes up. I want something quick without having to copy and paste the URL somewhere. Like you could always do that in Pocket, copy and paste the URL, and you can in Wallabag too. But even for Safari, there's um, a Wallabag widget that you can just click on or set up a keyboard shortcut for to paste the URL. I mean, to automatically add the URL to your list. But on Firefox, it'll nicely come up with, do you want to tag the story? And you can choose, if you ignore it, you don't have to, but you can choose the tags that you've already created or create new ones directly when you add a story, which I find it really useful. All right, I'm surprised it doesn't just delete Wallabag and give you a full screen advert for Pocket. (laughs) (laughs) That'll come. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember that for various amounts on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed of either just this show or all the shows in the Late Night Linux family. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com to try it for free on up to 100 devices. That's tailscale.com. All right, well... uh... It's time for me to mute Phalim's mic while I tell you about my experiences of the Pixel 7. I saw the highlights in our doc, and I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, yeah. So I got this Pixel 7, how long ago was that? It feels like months ago at this point. Mm. Maybe like three, four months. Anyway, so I've had some time to actually live with it. And um, I've become less enamored with it, to be honest, (laughs) from a software point of view. I mean, it's still too heavy. I, I uh, pick up my wife's OnePlus 6, which used to be mine, and it just feels so light compared to the Pixel 7. But that aside, anyway, charging issues, that's my main problem with it, right? I plug it into charge, and I've just got no idea if it's going to charge today or not. And, uh, you know, I, I might get in bed, let's say, feeling uh, half cut or <laughs> what's the uh, double cut more like, and just uh, plug my phone in, stick it down, and I wake up and it's 40-something percent plugged in, not charging. And someone said, check the, um, I think it was McPhail said, check the, the charging port, make sure there's no fluff in there. And believe me, I've checked that. It's not that. This is a software issue, man. It just connects to a charger and then decides randomly whether it wants to charge or not. And some cables work sometimes and they don't other times. It's just very frustrating, to be honest. And some charges work and some don't. I just, uh, I have to plug it in and make sure that it's actually charging before I can move on to the next thing that I'm doing, which is just annoying. 
Does it have some kind of intelligent charging thing that stops it overcharging at certain times? The iPhone's got something like that, and uh, it's bloody annoying, and it will stop it charging because it thinks it doesn't need to be charged beyond whatever percent, like 50%. Yes, it does have that, and I checked and it is enabled, but if it's at like 40-something percent, it's 4 o'clock in the morning, I'm getting in bed and I plug it in, and then I wake up, and it's still on 40-something percent, then mm. that's not intelligent charging. That is fucking dumb charging. Yeah, fair. So I think it might be a bit to do that, but I, I'm sort of scared to turn off the intelligent charging because I don't want to fry the battery. So, yeah, I don't know on that one. But it's either way, that is just an annoyance with it. Also, sometimes I get it out of my pocket, and it's just R-styled somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking unlocked itself, and... I definitely locked it before I put it in my pocket. And I don't know, is my thigh somehow doing my pattern on there? Or <laughs> does it think that my thigh has got the same thumbprint as me? <laughs> I, I don't think so. So that's very annoying. And then sometimes apps, and to be fair, this is mostly Mastodon, so it might be Mastodon's fault, the official client. I open it and it's just a black screen. And so I have to then kill the app and bring it back. And it's just generally a little bit buggy. And it's not really any less buggy than Lineage. And I thought what I was getting with a stock Pixel was not buggy bullshit like that. So that could be Mastodon's problem. I don't know. I, I should file a bug, but I don't know if it is Mastodon's problem or if it is the Pixel's problem. But uh, when I first talked about this, I raved about the camera, right? I said, oh, this is the best camera that I've ever had. And to some extent, <laughs> I stand by this. Yes, Phelan, get ready, get ready. So you'll never guess what my problem with the camera is. Take a wild guess what, what the problem is. Did it keep like substituting Saturn in instead of the moon when it was trying to take photos? Yes, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Now, what it is, right, yesterday I went to an event that was outdoors and it was a sunny day and uh, managed to avoid getting a sunburn just about but i took some photos with it and then i looked at them and this is something i've been suspecting for a few weeks and even in bright sunlight they are overprocessed and have that weird sort of ai look to them oh i hate that so much it like the colors are too vivid and no it's not that it's just that there's a certain it's like if you look at street view these days right it's not just pictures anymore. They try and make it look all 3D, but it's mm. got that weird sort of AI-ness yeah. about it. Okay, I know what you mean, all right. And I, I can't put my finger on exactly what it is, but just every photo I take with it, fair enough. If it's a pitch black when I normally go outside <laughs> and it's got a sort of make up the shit that's in the photo, I can forgive it. But in bright sunlight, I want something that is more realistic and less processed. Yeah. And I'm sure I can get other apps that would give me a more realistic thing, but this is the stock camera on it. I'm trying. I've been deliberately trying for the last few months to live the stock Pixel life. And yeah, like you are going to gloat about phone. I think it's, there's too much AI. There's too much bullshit. Although I have started using the, um, the OK Google thing. And um, yeah, it's just lit up now. Yeah, great. Thanks. <laughs> Fuck off. Have you tried raw photos, like using the raw mode from the advanced menu? I tried to look for that and I couldn't see it somehow. I bet if you said, okay, Google, take a photo of this 
outside garden scene and put black electrical tape over the camera lens, it'd probably <laughs> produce a better picture than what it's taken out the lens itself. It is getting to the point where you do wonder, does it actually need it? It's more like an interpretive painting that's happening. <laughs> oh, right. So there is an option in advanced raw slash JPEG control. Show option to turn on raw plus JPEG in the viewer. Raw files preserve details and offer more controls while editing. They take up more storage space. Good luck with that. <laughs> 30 megabyte photos. In theory, it will contain all the data that the camera captures, and then you've got to spend a bit of time editing it with something. But it'd be interesting to see if it, it doesn't have that processing. Right. So am I just doing it wrong by having everything default then? No. I mean, I think, this, I think it sounds like a mistake. It sounds like they've made some bad software choices, is what I'm trying to say. Is I don't think you're doing anything wrong. They're choosing a certain aesthetic that sounds horrible. Switching to RAW is like a last resort, really. It's like old-fashioned photography where you have to interpret the photo as you want to. Do you have to put your uh, phone inside an envelope and hand it into a lad underneath <laughs> a staircase at a shopping centre and wait for like 24 <laughs> hours for it to come back? Well, you know, RAW, RAW is a really great way of shooting photographs, but it's not point and click. You then have to load it into an app or put it, you know, on raw therapy or something on Linux and change the exposure and the brightness and the contrast and the shadows and the highlights, all those things that raw lets you do, but it takes time. But it'd be interesting to see if it doesn't do any, wonder whether it does any of the processing it's doing with the default modes or whether it just abandons all of that and gives you something that you might prefer even as just a JPEG. Mm, well, I'll have to do some experimentation with that. But uh, overall, I'm like, pretty much happy with the pixel 7 still but i think the honeymoon period's over and i'm starting to see its flaws it'd be interesting if you went to uh, lineage counseling for a bit and see if that's any better more like a trip to cupertino for one of their expensive offerings ah stop i think at some point you just get old enough to just buy an iphone <laughs> no you don't yes you do you don't. I'll get a rotary dial phone and a long extension <laughs> cable before that happens. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. Failing, you've got some more complaints about Flatpak for a change. Yeah, I mean, shocker here, but yeah, so I, I hinted last week, Leem's PC, it's essentially a games PC, purely for playing games, runs Linux, KD Neon, Steam was installed through, he actually installed Steam through Discover. So it's the flat pack that came on there because it's the only one. The other alternative is the Steam installer. So he has a Oculus Quest 2, I believe, that he saved and scraped and had birthday money for. And he wanted to hook that up with the special cable that you have and you can hook it up to your PC. 
And I looked into it, and yes, there is a way to do it, and it's a thing called ALVR, and it hooks into stream VR games to your PC with Wi-Fi, apparently. And I thought, okay, magic, it's covered. So that was my checkbox item months ago when you started this process of saving. And so we tried it at the weekend to actually hook it up, and it didn't work. And it was really annoying, and I didn't know why it was doing it. So I did a bit of research he went off in a huff and played something else. And I thought, okay, so it seems to be you dev rules that aren't there. So I got a thing called Steam. Oh, what Steam Devices, I think it's called. And I plugged that in. And meanwhile, at the same time, I had a problem with a steering wheel that was doing the same thing. So I got a Logitech Force Feedback steering wheel. I traded the old one back in that didn't work anyway. Got one that I thought would be a bit more reliable. And that works for most stuff, but then some games... It goes, oh, you don't have the UDEV rules in. I'm like, I definitely have the UDEV rules in. I can see the file right there. It's there. We booted. I know it's there. But Steam doesn't pick it up properly. And I think there is some sort of miscommunication going on with the flat pack. Maybe it's containment method or whatever. And UDEV or the kernel or whatever. But something doesn't work. It doesn't work with the VR headset, which it just seems like five projects that all link in together like steam vr alvr then you have to get this other thing which is called oh what is it called oh, i can't remember but it's like it's another application that you have to install separately uh side quest i think it's called and you have to install that and you have to do all things in the right number of steps but steam vr still wasn't seeing that headset and at this point i'm gonna have to uninstall his steam install he has now and then test it with the non-flatback installed to see if that's the issue. I haven't a clue, but all I can say is it's a big pile of shite, the whole lot of it. Have you been able to get any support from whoever the manufacturer of Oculus thing is? Whoever that might be. <laughs> you know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> that is just... I didn't pick it. He picked this all by himself. And I'm sure it was due to YouTubers or some other influencer arsehole. But yes, I have not resorted to any support on that. I have tried looking around and not found any. So that's why my next step is to take the flat pack out of the equation. And I'm not mentioning who that manufacturer is. Yeah, I mean, I, honestly, I've got an officially supported, I've got an HTC Vive running on Linux Steam VR, and it's still a nightmare of you dev rules, even without great <laughs> with using the uh, devs provided by Valve themselves. It's still a nightmare. It's still a nightmare keeping the right version of NVIDIA drivers installed and the right specific versions of the library it requires. And even then, it doesn't seem to work that well. Great. Cool. <laughs> well, maybe this this issue I can just like brush them off until somebody develops a piece of hardware that works. <laughs> uh, do you use the Steam as in uh, the one from Valve themselves? I.e., not yeah, a I contained. I ah, see. I think that's what that is because I tried Dirt Four on my machine, which I have a really old Steam installed off to a separate disk that runs NFS, and that's the reason why I couldn't use the Snap back in the day or the flat pack now because they want to be in your home directory. And I will have a way massive thing. And I said, well, all the games can go over here on this huge, you know, double disc system. And I tried the steering wheel out on Dirt 4, picked it up fine. So I know it has to be the flat pack in some extent doing it, but maybe not for the Steam VR bit, who knows. But it just can't see it. It just doesn't see it. And neither does Dirt 4, doesn't see the steering wheel. So yeah, really annoying. And that's why this whole... We had stuff working, and now we're going to container apps that don't work. It, it just seems a bit like a backward step. Maybe we're a bit too sort of 
keen with this and we should have just relaxed a little bit anyway right well we better get out of here then we'll be back next week when honestly who knows but until then I've been Joe I've been Phelan I've been Graham and I've been Will see you later <laughs>